This episode of ArcNext Sessions is brought to you by PPI, publisher of the David Kent Ballast ARE5 Review Manual. Make it a resolution to get licensed in 2017 and save 15% with code ARC17 during the month of January. Visit ppi2pass.com. That's PPI, the number two, PASS.com for more information. Welcome to ArcNext Sessions, episode 94. I'm Paul, and I'm here with my co-hosts, Donna and Kent. Happy New Year's, guys. Happy 2017. Happy 2017. You guys have good holidays? I, yeah, I had a really crazy New Year's Eve. Um, Worked on a a couple of items, got it out. One was a 16-page pager, and the other was a (laughs) 13-pager. These were proposals for projects. Yes. Oh. Yeah, I made the I made the transition to actually making it more me and uh, less of a kind of a boilerplate. So mm-hmm. it was so long because I included a lot of description about like the what was wrong with the particular project, existing building, oh. so that they could see that there may be some things that they have to consider, and mm-hmm. um, also used uh, some images uh, to kind of you know give some inspiration about the project going forward. And, uh, you know, I know the, we have, we're kind of bound by the, was it the justice department ruling about setting a fee? Mm-hmm. What is that again, Donna? I forget what that the is. The antitrust legislation antitrust that legislation. came through that we're not allowed to have a professionally agreed upon fee structure. Right. So what I did was I went around it. I used the uh, Canadian guideline as a kind of a, it was really, really instructive because, because it gave me um, a sense of how to consider all the aspects of each level of scope of the projects and uh, additional services. So it kind of broke it down. It's like, okay, here's a kind of basic scope of services and here's some additional things you can add. And there was a lot of things that I was missing from mine and uh, which I added because I think it demonstrated the value that I think a client needs to see. Yeah. You know, when you're trying to fix a fee and it was the, it was a fee for a project that is the largest fee I had ever proposed <laughs> for a project. Yeah. And uh, so I did that. And then I, looked at what they're structuring and how they organize fees around like, you know, different types of projects, uh, level of difficulty. They kind of work it that way. And then, you know, fees. And there's a few different items, you know, documents out there. Arkansas has one. I'm, I'm sure all states have one. We're working on state projects, they, how they structure fees. So it was interesting. So I worked on that. So are you charging in Canadian dollars now? <laughs> I think it worked out uh, to be just under. <laughs> yeah, because I would advise against that considering the value of the dollar up there. Oh, Canada. Doesn't it look beautiful in Canada right now, though? Doesn't, <laughs> don't we all just want to go up to Canada now? Oh, man. I, it sounds like I had a similar holiday, Ken. My family did come visit, but I basically spent the whole holiday working. And in fact, my first day back at work after the holiday... I told my boss I would like to take the next two days off because I have so many freelance things I'm working on right now. And I was honest with him about that. So yeah, I've basically been working nonstop through the holiday. I had a great Christmas, but uh, yeah, it's been a lot of work lately. Things are busy. Paul, I'm guessing that the job board is still flying like crazy at Arconet because I know a lot of people are trying to hire right now. Yeah, there's a massive amount of new jobs posted so far in 2017. It was pretty quiet over the holidays, which is usual, but there are a lot of opportunities right now out there. You know, but it's interesting. I think your comment about asking your boss for a little time off due to freelancing, I think that would make a really interesting podcast one of these days about working on the side in a job. And and does your boss, he's uh, or she cool with that? Well, yes, he is, but I work in a 
major institution. There's no conflict of interest, right? Because I'm not taking a client from my boss if I work with that client privately because I work for a museum. We don't, Mm -hmm. you know, we don't design things for people. When I have worked in actual firms, there was always concern about it. So it would actually be a good topic at some point. I think Ken could probably speak very well to that topic as well. Ken, not really. (laughs) (laughs) You know, Ken is doing this for friends. (laughs) Should we set out a a thing we're not allowed to talk about ourselves in the third person? Because I'm not happy with how our president-elect continuously refers to himself in the third person. But then there was Jimmy from Seinfeld. (laughs) He was charming. Yes, exactly. You can't let Trump bring Jimmy down. Oh, okay. You're right. You're right. Trump won't steal that joke. Paul, how was your holiday? It was very nice, actually. I have little to no work beyond oh, just the necessary, you know, time each day. But yeah, spent some time in LA and uh, and then went to Mammoth with the family, which is a ski mountain um, in California. We've been getting dumped with rain and snow in California, yeah. which has been great. Great for skiing and just great for uh, the state. So yeah. yeah, it was cool. But I'm actually really excited to be back at work. I think that's what happens when you don't work that much over a over a vacation. You get re-energized. I don't know what that's like. So, <laughs> <laughs> as many of our architect listeners probably understand. So, Paul. Yes. Quick question for you. We seem to be missing somebody from our podcast. Did you want to? Yes. Do you want to? Yeah. Say why that is, or is that a later moment? <laughs> I had this plan to talk about this in our last podcast that Amelia was with us, but I think she wanted to avoid the, maybe the, the episode uh, being about, about her and the fact that she was ending her time with the podcast and at ArcConnect around that time. We are, we're very sad to have said goodbye to Amelia. She's onto her next phase of life, which is graduate school. And she's taking a little time off to travel and live in the world until she heads off to school in the fall. And uh, yeah, so that leaves us, the three of us here, taking over the podcast, which is a lot more work and more difficult because Amelia was such a huge part of this podcast. She did a lot of the research and a lot of the planning for it. And as everybody who knows from listening to the podcast, she's a real talent when it comes to talking about these issues and and interviewing people. And she's just, uh, she's kind of born to be a radio personality. So it's going to be, it'll be, it'll be different without her. We already miss her a lot. But we will continue. Yeah, it's it's exciting for her that she's moving on. And it would have been a very tearful goodbye if we she had said her goodbyes on the air last podcast because we're going to miss her so much. But we will. Yeah, we had a few goodbyes here in the office, dinners and lunches. And and I I, I could sense that maybe she was getting a little exhausted from all of the <laughs> all of the <laughs> emotional goodbyes. So, you know, I understood that she wanted to. But I think I, I really liked, Ken, how you brought up your uh, famous two last questions for her, because I thought that was a really appropriate little hint. Yeah. And I'll, I'll believe me, I'll let you know when I the finalization of my nomination comes through to be the uh, architect for the Capitol under the Trump administration. Uh-huh. I plan on <laughs> approaching it with vim and vigor. <laughs> You'll give us plenty of warning. Yeah. White men are the shit now. So. Well, my my only response to that is, uh, what are you reading and what are you listening to? <laughs> no, stop. Right now I'm reading a Russian dossier. <laughs> 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 I hear I got to get up all, all my kink, so I got to get yep. that straightened out. So when yep. I go to Make Russia, sure you I know, know all the do. terminology. Well, he loves oh, his gold. <laughs> he sure does. Oh, I can't even think about it. It's been a, it's been a rough transition for all of us. 
It has been. As, yeah, as we were talking about before we started uh, recording this. It was a strange 12 hours following up Obama's speech with Trump's press conference. But we, I think we should just uh, let that go and we can move on to architecture news. Architecture. What do you guys think? Let's talk about architecture. Yeah. yeah. So today... Today, we got three stories that have been coming up in the news on Arconnect. One of them is not yet on the website, but it will be by the time this episode goes live tomorrow on Thursday. So first up is the uh, winners of Exhibit Columbus's Miller Prize that were just announced. And Donna, I know that you were at the presentation of all, all the finalists, so I'm sure you have some thoughts on, on this announcement. Oh, yeah. It's a big deal. That was actually the sort of most exciting part of my Monday was heading into work. I got a text from someone who shall remain nameless that said prizes are announced. And I ran to my computer and turned on, looked at the they they what they did in Columbus, Indiana, is they announced it in the Republic newspaper. And then the Indy Star picked up that story very quickly. And Exhibit Columbus itself announced it on their Instagram page. So it's been a lot of chatter around here, certainly, and in the architecture circles I'm move in. One of the things I like is that the way that Richard and Josh, who we had on the podcast several episodes ago, and we'll put a link in the show notes to that one, the way that they've structured this competition was that, or this this exhibition, was that they would make the visiting architects who would do these projects actually compete against one another. So on December 10th, they had a presentation in the SOM-designed City Hall building in Columbus, which is an awesome building, so beautiful, very modern, almost going to postmodern. It's really great. All 10 teams who were selected presented, and they were paired on in five individual sites. And so two teams would present their proposals for one site, and then the next two would go. And they all brought models, and the models were on display. And our connector Stephen Ward was there with me, and uh, we just spent the day listening to people talk about really good work. And that was such a luxurious way to spend a day, a Saturday. I said on my Facebook, book, it was better than a spa day to just spend the day there listening to people showing and talking about architecture. So then the jury disappeared after that day and uh, made their selections. You know, I can honestly say, and I know this sounds like kind of a mealy mouth thing to say, but I can honestly say that every one of these projects would have been great built. They were all really high quality proposals. I will just call out a couple that I especially liked or liked aspects of them in the presentation. Howler and Yoon presented something called the Pattern Pavilion, and it was based on, and this is especially for like architecture students to think about, it was cited at the first Christian church by Saarinen, Eliel Saarinen. And what Eliel Saarinen does, one of his sort of motifs in his work is to do these carved lines, these geometric patterns that I don't think there's really been much scholarly research into what they were about or why he did them. And Eric Howler became obsessed with those and wondered, what are they about? And then built a, or designed an idea for a pavilion that would be based on these odd geometric patterns. They almost look like runes or something that Saarinen often would use on his building. And if you've been to Cranbrook, you've seen those patterns. They're all around the door to the library at Cranbrook. And it was a really beautiful presentation that sort of just showed, you know, the way that architects think, how we look at something and get curious about it and go, huh, I wonder what that's about and how can I work with that in some interesting way? And then you go through the rigors of distilling it down to an actual design concept and then figuring out how do I structure this? You know, how do I make this thing something that's buildable, that's inhabitable, that can meet code even, all of those things. So I feel like that presentation was just a really great sort of distillation of the process of design in a really beautiful way. But like I said, every single presentation was was fantastic. 
And uh, the other one I wanted to sort of point out was Balnogues. Interestingly, both the ones I've just pointed out are neither of them won. Balnogues, who has done a lot of work and been featured on Arconnect before, they had a proposal to do a temporary pavilion using cast paper as their medium. And they've done some experiments with it to figure out how it holds up to weather. And part of the proposal was to cast the paper around objects like the Knoll Eames furniture that Arrow Saarinen used in that Miller Bank building. And the sort of notion of using that very iconic shaped object of the tulip chair in this casting process so that there was a reflection or a shadow of that object in the larger pavilion, I thought was just a really, really cool, beautiful idea, very ephemeral. Did you guys get a chance to look at any of the presentations and and what did you think of them? I looked at all of them. Mm -hmm. The only one I really, that struck me, and I think, you know what, I think it was the best of the worst two that I saw <laughs> that I really was not thrilled with. And I thought that was a, that was h- really hard for me to look at was the Rogers Memorial Library, the Johnston Markley. And I just didn't, mm-hmm. it, it, it just, it was too subtle. It didn't resonate. And I hate, I know it's, it's kind of an old term. It's a 1990s term, but the intervention wasn't striking enough for me. Whereas the other one, what was irritating about it, and I don't like the IKD one at all, was it looks great in plan. And I think, it, you know, when you start thinking about subtractive and additive, and I start thinking about what is too much, if I took those two discs that were elevated, and I understand the principle and what they're trying to get across, but if I took those elevated platforms away, do I still have a resonant kind of piece of work? And it, I still think that the circle, the flat, just the larger plinth, as it starts to transition to, you know, walkable or even ramped kind of seating, that to me was enough. And it just, I don't like these discs lit. I don't like the structure it sits on. I don't like anything about it. So it really, I just don't like either of those two projects. And it was a shame that they were kind of paired against each other because at least in the other ones, you you could look at, like my favorite one so far of the ones that were selected is the Euler Wu. I really, really love the, the movement of the piece. I like how it moves from solid to kind of has this diaphanous quality, this kind of see-through, uh, very elegance. And just something about that piece that is very different than the building. And it just seems very well detailed. You know, the other ones I really like. Wait, the, I'm going to interrupt you because I want to I want to stick with a, a, a line of thought here yeah. about the library, too. So the one by IKD that won the conversation plan versus the Johnson Mark Lee. I mean, I agree with you. I think the Johnson Mark Lee was extremely subtle and maybe a little Yeah, maybe sort of hard to enter. But this is where we get to the question of how a rendering represents an idea versus how when people present an idea, how you can sort of be brought along with it. And and I don't want to be as crass as to say salesmanship, but that you can sort of sell an idea. The Yugon Kim's presentation for the IKD proposal was, I would say, the best presentation in that it totally went through and touched on 10 different things that were important. So the, the, the Yugan Kim's work previously has been around experimenting with wood and experimental with uses of wood. And so for this, they proposed to use hardwood CLT, which has not been done yet. But Indiana has a hardwood industry that's, I think it's like basically used to make pallets or something. It's used for sort of shitty uses. But by using the hardwood for something in a composite panel, it can become a 
different way of basically harvesting and using a natural resource. So they touched on sort of that sciency, you know, and and farming aspect of it. And then they talked about how it's the conversation plinth because they were inspired by the Miller House conversation pit and wanted to do something that would, you know, would bring that idea into the public. And then they talked about how they have some grant available that they're already trying to apply for to get grant money to fund this project because they can tell that it's a very ambitious project for this site. And I would say that if you just looked at those renderings, you don't get any of that. And it almost looks kind of clumsy and big. It looks top heavy. But the way that they presented it, the way they told the story, and again, sort of thinking about architecture students listening to this, the way that you tell the story of your project, everyone in the room is just like sitting there with their mouth open, like, oh my God, that's perfect. You know, that's that's perfect. So it, it is one that I'm fearful may get minimized in the actual built object, because I do think it's pretty ambitious for what kind of funding they have for this. So it may get smaller. Yeah. But you, it sounds like you might think that's a good idea. No, and that gets to my point. I mean, we've had this before, right? We've had competitions before of this scale, not a real like strong building where you're going to have a real, you know, you're going to have multiple consultants involved. This is kind of more along the scale of remember that one house, that one competition that we just excoriated because the rendering looks so fantastic. Yes. And then the finished yeah. product looked like a wrinkled mess of aluminum foil. The mirror house in Detroit. Yeah. yeah. What was that? The Flint. Flint. So this to me, this is where my brain went to was that project and thinking about these works. I go, is are any of these going to be built? Is this constructible? Because those are the mm-hmm. kinds of discussions that I am always, when I think of these projects on this scale, I go back to Flint and I go back to that thought. I'm like, there was a really well conceived, really well presented idea. You can't agree with every idea, but at least it was a well presented idea. It was probably convincingly presented and everyone's kind of going, yeah, that makes sense. All these things make sense. And then the form is seems top heavy. You know, it, like you can almost anticipate the structure for the supporting of this thing is going to be a lot more awkward looking and may not look anything like the renderings. So that's a, my kind of my thought about this. And, and some of the other ones are a little more simpler, but I don't think that that means that because, you know, like the Howler, or no, not the Howler, you know, the other project I spoke about that has that. The Euler Woo. Euler Woo. With the pavilion. Yeah. You know, it looks really, I mean, it looks pretty simple, but that doesn't, in my mind, I don't go, well, because it's, it's so simple looking and so amazingly uh, elegant looking that it's easy to construct. It looks really complicated <laughs> to make something that that good to construct. It. it costs a lot of money to do something like that. So in some of these other ones, I just, I was like, how did that get in here? I actually liked the indigenous project. I, I didn't understand. I really didn't understand the Baumgartner project. It just, it looked, it really looked rather just it didn't seem well fitted for this project, and I really like the simplicity of the uh, Aranda Lash project. I thought that was, um, you know, it has this kind of like bird-like, qual- you know, those what is that network of birds that has this kind of shifting pattern and it, 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 the murmuration of Sterling. Yes, it just felt like that, and it just <laughs> I'm looking at it, and it just has a very simple landscape. When I'm looking at it versus the other project, the other one just looks like ribbons of like you know. I didn't understand it. It didn't come off very well. And it looked too much like it wasn't going to work. This one, the Aranda Lash one, see more. One of the, just specific to the Aranda Lash, and one of the things I'll say about all of them is they actually all did speak to fabricators, okay. contractors. I mean, Brian, my husband who fabricates, spoke to several of them. Zayner Metals, Zahner, they were involved in several of them. So part of the thrust of this entire competition and symposium in 
Columbus, Indiana, specific to that place, is that industry and technology and design can be aligned and that they work together. And so during the symposium, Zayner Metals and Bill Chrysler from Chrysler, I can't remember what they're called. They're out in California. They do amazing metal work. They did the work for the SF MoMA expansion. Those people, those like like titans of alternative industry were there in the room talking. And that, you know, despite all of these looking like they might be too expensive or be whatever, I do have faith that they all really worked closely with someone who could work with them to fabricate and collaborate on how it would happen. But what's funny to me specifically about the Arundelashes, I'm really doubtful that they're going to be able to put all those pieces. And I love the idea for the same reasons you said, Ken, the, the idea of it as a collection of these sort of flowing objects. And it's all reused limestone that's put in this circle that you can see from above, see from a long range view. But the idea that you can just go and gently drop one of these things into the grass and it will just sit there as this beautiful, simple piece in an otherwise undisturbed landscape. That's the part that concerns me about their proposal. What I see is that that whole landscape is going to be just torn up as they're, you know, using lulls to carry these pallets full of recycled limestone out there. It's going to be a real challenge to pull that one off and have it look as simple as the renderings make it look. Uh, That's my concern. But I do think it's a, it, I think it's a beautiful idea. So it's funny to me though, again, I'm, I'm seeing this completely from the inside and I'm trying to think if I were just looking at these images on the internet and trying to judge them, it's actually really hard. You really only get a tiny bit of the story. Yeah. You know, which, Paul, that's what you face with. You, that's what basically what you're trying to battle every day with the architect, right? Is to get more of that information out there for people to mm -hmm. understand these things better. Yeah. I mean, I can't wait until VR technology is there where people can just strap on uh, a headset and, and be in, in these designs. Because, yeah, I mean, each of these proposals is presented with just one image, right? I mean, they weren't in the actual presentation, but on Instagram, yes. On Yeah, on the okay. website, on the website, they show all the proposals and they've got several of them have at least five or six. There's a couple that only have like two or three. And the, the ones that only have a few images are less convincing to me, I think. Yeah. There was a couple that just had, I think there was one in there that had just two images and it was like, really? Yeah. The Exhibit Columbus Instagram is actually a really good resource for people looking for more information because they took a lot of pictures of the actual presentation and of each model. And uh, so that would be a good place to look. I mean, in general, I think these uh, proposals are really exciting. And it's great to see this kind of these kinds of architects and this kind of work coming back to the Midwest. It's it's really I mean, the Midwest really is a I just recently a friend of mine was saying that he was in Columbus and he's not an architect, but he was he was telling me how surprised he was that there was so many amazing kind of mid-century buildings there. And it's true. I mean, it's it's a the whole, you know, this whole initiative, the Exhibit Columbus initiative has, is is really seemed to be uh, doing something great for bringing that kind of work and those and these discussions back to that area. That's the goal. And wait till the movie starring. Parker Posey and John Cho comes out called Columbus. <laughs> People, it's at Sundance right now. Really? Suddenly everyone's going to be going to Columbus to see the architecture. Yeah, I hope. <laughs> next place to invest. Yep. All right. Well, should we move on to our next story? Sure. So I wanted to, oh, this is going to be a rough one to go through, I'm afraid. But Michael Kimmelman wrote a piece for the New York Times from yesterday, the 10th of January, called 
the lights are on in Detroit. And first of all, let's just say this is another one of those articles that's going to make people say, how come Kim Woman never talks about architecture? Because people accused him all the time of not really being an architecture critic, which he is. But this is a story about how Detroit now has 65,000 new LED streetlights. And this is in a city where three years ago, over half the streetlights in the city were out and vast swaths of the city were dark and basically had been forgotten by that kind of urban infrastructure that those of us in, you know, pleasant suburbs just assume is always going to be there. We just take it for granted. So he talked a little bit about the sort of specifics of it. It was a, an installation of 65,000 new LED streetlights at a cost of $185 million. The people at the energy department that Detroit spoke to actually flat out said, you have to do LED. And frankly, the investment by the Obama energy department in LED research has brought the prices of LEDs to the point that now you can do something like a like a civic streetlight in LED for not a completely unreasonable amount of money. So three cheers for federal investment in research. And that operating these LEDs is going to save about $3 million a year. Plus, and this is one of those ugly realities that we just have to face as architects and people that work in cities, the LEDs are fed by or use aluminum wiring. And aluminum wiring is just not as attractive to scrappers as copper wiring is. So many of the broken streetlights in Detroit had become that way because they were sodium vapor that used copper and all of the copper wiring had been stripped. So this just seems like a super win-win situation. They're saying now that nighttime pedestrian usage in a lot of neighborhoods that have sort of some small retail components is is up, that people are actually willing to walk out on the streets a little more. Kids waiting for the school bus have light in the mornings, which of course is wonderful. And I think Kimmelman's point was that, that this seems like not a very exciting or sexy or, you know, cool discussion, but these kind of investments in small infrastructure can have a huge impact on just the quality of life and what we just take for granted as what we want in our built environment. For a lot of architects, I think we understand that, that something as small as a streetlight can change the sort of emotional sensation of an entire block. And, you know, most people would just think of it as just something that is maybe not that important. Did you have any comments you want to make specific to this story, Paul or Ken? Because I actually want to tie this to a bigger story about national infrastructure as well. I'd say I think it's I think it's great. It's a shame that what we're going to see happen in the future, this may not be as readily available. At least the funds investment from the federal government seems um, unlikely. But uh, Minneapolis has done a pilot project changing over to LED as well. And, and the concern was always, are the lights too bright? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> because if I have a light post outside my home and I'm trying to sleep because of where my bedroom is situated on the street, <laughs> am I going to be you know dealing with this? So it's always interesting to me. I think you're trying to make sure the streets are well lit, that people are feeling safe, and that the it happens a lot. Um, they're trying to do it here in, in Minneapolis along connections to the transit corridor uh, for light mm-hmm. rail. So it makes complete sense. But then you have the NIMBYs you know, just resistant to that. So I think that, you know, I think you're going to find that NIMBYs are going to be um, probably a lot more resistant under this and probably find much more favor under an administration that we're going to have. In less than 10 days. <laughs> yeah. Which leads to your next point. <laughs> yeah. So that's that. And I was going to ask, is your, you have light rail in Minneapolis? Oh, we have a couple. We have one that connects the Mall of America to downtown and from downtown Minneapolis to downtown St. Paul. And we got one of them completed under the Bush administration. And the other one was completed during Obama's administration. So we got 
really lucky on the timing on that one. Because I think what light rail has proven, especially the connection between uh, Minneapolis and St. Paul, is how vitally important it is. And it, it's actually altering the configuration along that corridor from Minneapolis to St. Paul. It's activating. It really displaced a lot of businesses. Businesses hung in there. The state cities worked really, really hard to kind of make those connections and those disruptions minimal. And they were by and large very successful. Unfortunately, of course, it's going to, it's now create an opportunity for us to get a soccer stadium here and which is going to be constructed with some public money, but it's going to further enhance the corridor, which is obviously going to push up rents along the corridor that have been, you know, really kind of down for the long period of time. And, you know, it's going to do what it does. And, you know, I'm not sure you would call it gentrification because it's primarily a commercial corridor, but it's certainly, it's salted the nature of that stretch of road, which is pretty fascinating. It's it's a much more pleasant place to be with this light route, but yeah, I'm pretty stoked about it. Is Minneapolis one of the cities that in the last elections voted in an expansion of transit? Because many cities did. What's been fascinating, you know, the mass transit here is kind of a double-edged sword. It's fantastic. It's one of the best transit systems I think I've ever seen in a city of this size. However, what the metro transit, you know, because it's not it's not a city kind of function, it's more of a, a more of a what is it? A, a state metro, metro. Right. so it's a right. state function, right. but they've really have dropped the ball when it comes to communities of color. I mean, you know, when we were working yeah. on our bus stop proposal, the one of the things I uh-huh. I worked on was looking at, you know, when we were looking at bus stops um, to do one of the things I found is just how underserved North Minneapolis was by the bus systems. You would figure that would be the biggest uh, need and it certainly is, mm-hmm. but uh, the transit system here really serves does a better job of serving primary modes of connecting. You know, St. Paul and Minneapolis doesn't really work too well in North Minneapolis. And the other thing is that you know Minneapolis has a long history, not unlike many other places in the country, where either state highways or transit systems have uh, discriminated against African Americans and have destroyed African American communities. So we have a long history of bad things because of transit, but we also have a, it's, there's a lot of bad, but there's a lot of good in here as well. So one of the many things I'm concerned about with the changes in the administration at the federal level right now are allocations for federal dollars for transit projects, which frankly, in the last elections, a lot of, um, of cities, Los Angeles and Indianapolis, us, and I, I know other ones voted in some transit projects that will rely on some federal funding. So just today, the day that we're recording on Wednesday, Elaine Chow had her hearing as the new Secretary of Transportation. And all of the headlines are that she cruised through the hearing and that the Senate enjoys a love fest during, that was the actual word they used, a love fest during the Elaine Chow hearing. And it's a cozy relationship. I mean, Elaine Chow is someone, she's been around, she's been in DC for 40 years. She's married to Mitch McConnell. She was Secretary of Labor for Bush II, Secretary or Deputy Secretary of Transportation for Bush one, or sorry, Bush, maybe I have that flipped. I mean, the woman has a lot of experience, so there's no questioning her abilities and her knowledge. But she was specifically asked about Seattle, which just voted in, I think it's an $83 million, 83, I'll have to double check that number. I think it's 83 billion. I think it is 83 billion, actually, but I was kind of nervous saying that. But yeah, I think it's an $83 billion infrastructure expansion of their transit system. And she was specifically asked, will the transit projects that are already in the pipeline for Seattle be supported 
in the new administration, and she would not confirm that they would be. She basically answered by saying, I will have to review that project. And so this led me back to an article from the Washington Post that brought out the fact that in 2009, Elaine Chao addressed the conservative PAC conference and said this, and this is a quote from her, beneath the warm and fuzzy bipartisan rhetoric is the same old tax and spend crowd that has now taken control of our government and is implementing policies that will turn our country into Europe. And of course, all I can think is, well, Europe would be great. I'd love to have their kind of density and their kind of public transit and their kind of, you know, lack of reliance on cars. That'd be wonderful to be Europe. Two-hour lunches. Yeah, exactly. Two-hour lunches and free health care. <laughs> but so I would just say that I'm a little nervous about where the infrastructure I mean, we've talked earlier about Trump's infrastructure spending being not really spending, but being tax breaks for private corporations to do for-profit infrastructure projects like toll roads. I'm nervous about where our infrastructure is headed in this country. You guys, are you nervous? Nervous. (laughs) Or am I just being a chicken little? I'm looking for something to be not nervous about these days. Oh, God, I know. Yeah, but infrastructure is one of them. You know, I I don't trust the public-private partnerships. Not, I don't not either. Fully. Yeah. Some of them have been good, but they're really questionable in a lot of ways. You know, I think what still stays with me is a, is a Cotty Park and um, how, you know, just mm-hmm. how Occupy Wall Street and how all of that really demonstrated how public space is really rendered private and how there's a different kind of thinking around that. And I never really you know, fully understood how that could happen. And, you know, it's it really gets down to it's very basic. It's it's pretty simple to understand when you put it and you frame it in this way. If roads are going to be a pri- have a public private component, then be prepared to pay taxes in another way. And not only that, but if it's a private entity building a public road or a highway, you can bet your ass that the toll is not going to be you're not going to have any say over that toll. You're not going to have any input over how that road gets fixed, that road will get fixed to satisfy the needs of whatever entity built that road. And then because we know that most of our companies are not, are multinational corporations, what is the interest? And then we start thinking about, well, what is the vested interest in the the stockholder? Because the stockholders aren't ultimately just Americans, they're everybody. So why do I have to have a vested interest in, in making sure America's roads are, are well-constructed and well-conceived just because they have to, you know, Americans are dwindling, you know, we're not, we're not there yet, there yet, but we're certainly not the largest consumers in the world and we won't be. Demographics are changing, birth rates are changing. So the idea that, that we're going to be a, America first uh, nation when it comes to our infrastructure is just laughable if you start getting into these private public private partnerships because the interest is in the is satisfying the investor but at the same time when what I'm saying that is that the investor well if you have a 401k you're an investor so if you're a, if mm, you have right, one of those right. you are part of the problem and we all have one of those so we're all part of the problem welcome to the problem but i i mean the the biggest one of the biggest battles i tried to fight when we were voting in transit here in Indianapolis, which we did, it did pass, but we are depending on federal funding for some of it, was that uh, everyone complains that you don't, buses don't, you don't make a profit, that, you know, you don't, the fares don't make a profit. And to me, it's, we need to just move beyond the mindset that these kinds of things need to turn a profit. You don't need roads to turn a profit. You need them to get people to jobs where they can do the things (laughs) that, 
will make them want to live there and, and enjoy a quality of life and make a profit, meaning their salary. You know, it's, it's not, it's, I don't know the economic terms for any of this, but the whole notion that our streetlights would need to serve to turn a profit or that the police department needs to turn a profit. That's a ridiculous way of looking at it. And all of the, you know, the sort of talk of running the country like a business, that's not how we operate. <laughs> that's just at flat out not what a government and a community is about. So yeah, I'm, I'm really skeptical of where this is all going to go. If, if we, you know, think of, of every single thing that comprises our built communal world as having to be profitable for someone. It needs to be that kind of smushy profit, not the hardline dollar, you know, bottom line. Well, you know who has an opinion on this? Who? Patrick Schumacher. We should get Patrick oh, on God. and talk about, oh, my God. Talk about privatizing I'm parks. And <laughs> I'm done listening to Patrick. I've listened to more than enough Patrick. <laughs> And I know he's been in the news lately for the, that email that supposedly he wrote. I'm just, I'm tired of listening to Patrick. He said more than enough. Paul, can you back me up on this? <laughs> tired of listening to him. <laughs> yeah, no, I think, I think even if we wanted him on, I have a feeling they've put a gag on him. A ball and gag? Yeah. Red oh, ball no, and just, gag? That's, that's, that's Putin. That's not, that's not Schumacher. Oh, God. All right. Well, should we move on? Should we move on to the final one? The final news is uh, kind of broke on on uh, Facebook this morning, uh, yeah. mostly from my network and probably yours as well through uh, from Mimi Zeiger, who was the first that I noticed to point out that CyArk's newly announced lecture series for spring 2017 is a very male heavy lecture series with no women architects. A couple women, but no female architects. Interesting. You know, I don't want to rush in or shower too much praise, but we seem to be in a golden age of men. <laughs> but it's clear that CyArk and AIA don't have a large enough binder full of women. So <laughs> I think I really kind of covered it there. If you read between the lines and pick up on the find. No, I, honestly, I mean, you know, how does the AIA and how does CyArk, how do we get to this point? Was last year the age of women because we had Julia Louis-Dreyfus and we had Neri Oxman and uh, we had Denise Scott Brown finally get her gold medal? I mean, is that it? And the AIA conference convention in Orlando has one woman on the keynote address. Not even an architect. She's going to be there talking about some touchy-feely things. And, and maybe maybe AIA and CyArk just feel that, that lady architects aren't a thing anymore. I don't know. Maybe it's just about men. I feel like I'm in that in Back to the Future. I'm going to start fading out of the photograph, you know, because <laughs> I just I don't really exist anymore. Like, I guess there are no women that, that anyone can call, no women architects that can be called and, you know be brought into these these presentations. So yeah, I kind of feel like I'm getting a little uh, shaky and transparent and I'm just like in Back to the Future going to just start to disappear. Here I go. Oh, can you guys hear me still? Can you hear what? me? Am I getting too Oh, what happened? <laughs> I don't know. Amelia's already gone. I, I feel Donna fading. <laughs> exactly. Amelia flat out disappeared and now I'm about to. But you know, I think it's really important when these instances pop up where there is clearly a lack of female involvement or selection in this case. But I have to also, I'm going to play the devil's advocate because we have been the victim of the feminist wall of shame's uh, criticism in the past, specifically for a recent Next Up 
podcast panel event that we did, which was predominantly men. And, you know, and, and this is coming from a group of people in our office. I can't, I can't stress enough how, how pro gender equality we are and how pro women's right our offices in general. But in this situation, we reached out to a number of people and a number of the women could not do it either because they were out of, they were out of the city at that time or they, one of them actually had just had a baby, which is her fault for being a woman. Exactly. But, but it was, it was, uh, so what we ended up with was a mostly male panel while trying to stick to the theme of of our event and as a result we got we got criticized for being overly overly male but it was very much unintentional as as it was as it, we started from the beginning so i think you know i think it it brings up you know i'm not um saying that it wasn't that we couldn't have done more to ensure that 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 couldn't happen but i i wouldn't jump to the conclusion that it's intentional. We don't know exactly what was going on. That said, I really, you know, I think I think that it should be brought up and it should be discussed every time we see that kind of imbalance. And I think the more we do, the more it's going to become, I think the more people will become more consciously aware of ensuring that there's a balanced group of voices that are being presented and hopefully it will become more balanced uh, going forward. Yeah. So I'm, I'm kind of, uh, I've been on the end of uh, criticism, but I also do completely see the importance of maintaining equality. Yeah. And you know, cause Donna, Donna is no longer here anymore. I just want to like <laughs> chime in as a, as the, <laughs> as the, the other white male on the podcast was something to say more important, obviously, you know, on, on, on Mimi's Facebook, and her social media, there was uh, one of the posters, and this is why it's important. As recently as, and this is, I'm just going to quote her directly. I don't know her, but she said, as recently as two weeks ago, was personally referred to by an academic in institution as a potential, potential diversity hire. I mean, that's where we are. And that's, that's why, you know, if I think, I think your ego and I think Arconet can handle you know, because I think you do do a good job. I think the the site does have a good representation across the board. Um, but I think you can take it. And I think, you know, I think is what's not so easily understood is, is, and I think it would be fascinating to hear is, is, you know, how are these events put together? Because, you know, it, it may seem a little bit like sausage making, but it does, it does affect, you know, it does give people pause and say, if I don't hear anything back about something, then, you know, if I don't, I, like, I didn't know, didn't know that that's what happened with, with, uh, with that particular series, but it, it's, it's informative and instructive to say, Hey, look, we did, we did reach out to people. We did reach out to women. We tried to get a, a diverse group of people, uh, women and, and a diverse group of people to talk about these topics and not have it so male centered, but it just didn't work out that way. And I think it's important to kind of understand what's the process. Is there something they're trying to get across? Is it perhaps that there isn't someone who fits this particular strain of like, you know, discussion? And I'm sure there is, but you know, it would just be interesting to hear more about that. So when I read that that quote and I hear that that that's really somebody said that, I mean, how old is that person that gets that what where does that come off? Where do you get to say something like that and still have a job? Yeah, it's uh it's interesting. I mean, I feel like there was probably no awareness of the lack of gender equality in this lineup 
during the process. And I don't know if the people in charge of creating this lecture series is to blame or if it's just where we're at in in our culture is to blame. Because, I mean, when when people are getting together in a meeting and trying to figure out who to who to put in a in a in a lineup of speakers, they're going to be referring to people that they're seeing that they've seen in person that they're reading about in the news. And there is that gender bias existing in general. So, you know, it is maybe it's it's a reflection of of the kind of world that they have immersed them, themselves in rather than a their own personal decisions to to go, you know, to go more male. But yeah, it's tricky. But I think that we really do need to bring it up and need to always make people aware of these uh these imbalances. Donna, I still see you somewhat um you're you're <laughs> You're about twenty percent. Yeah, you're about twenty percent opaque. <laughs> yes, my hand is raised. But you're still here. So. so I mentioned earlier, before we started recording, that I'm now following at least one Republican on Twitter, and I am also very consciously. And can I give full credit to you for this? I'm very consciously following some people on Twitter who are people of color, both within our discipline and not, because. You specifically have to make the effort sometimes to hear the voices of people who you don't normally hear. I mean, you just have to make yourself, it's like exercising. You just have to make yourself reach out and find those other voices, even if they're people you don't think you'll agree with, as in the case of this Republican that I'm following, um, or in the case that they are people whose voices have been systematically quieted. You have to reach out and listen to them. And Ken, you're on Facebook. You've been doing this amazing job of reposting the comments and the the shares by people of color. And I am learning a lot from it. I mean, that's the thing. I'm learning new voices. I'm learning new viewpoints that I never would have heard otherwise. And my this year, I am joining the NOMA, which is the National Organization of Minority Architects, which is open to anyone because I specifically am trying to hear those voices. I took part in the AIA chat that was last week with, and I'm going to forget his name now, but he's the hip hop architect, Mark, I think, specifically, again, to hear these these voices by African-American architects in that case, which was most a lot of who was talking on that Twitter chat. And it was great. But you ju- you have to really make the effort. So I'm going to make a relationship to the what was the the Washington Post? Was it a Washington Post magazine that went out this week about the women's march on Washington? And they used an image of yes. the male symbol. Yes. Like you sometimes just get very comfortable in your state of mind and you don't ask that question am I paying enough attention to this? And in that case, clearly several copy editor people were not paying attention and somehow the male image went out rather than the female one, which I thought was hilarious, but also incredibly frustrating. You know, it's, um, I think black people, native peoples, immigrants, we live in a 21st century. Technology is readily available. We're not without resources. They're done educating us about what it means to be black, gay, lesbian, trans, immigrant, just done. And I think, you know, it's incumbent upon us if we want to say we want to understand the world better and understand people's perspectives better, that we need to, you know, reach out and grab our own sense of what it means to be an active person in the world and in our environment and teach ourselves. Stop relying on Black and brown peoples and gay peoples to teach you what it means to be a fucking human being. You know, I don't rely on Mitch McEwen or S-Surface or any of my other connections on Facebook to teach me, but they have. They have through their pain, through their anger, through their own experiences. And I have a better sense of what it means to be what my footprint is in this world. We talk about carbon footprint. We have a white footprint. And 
I have a male footprint and a white footprint and mine extends pretty, you know, and I'm Dutch. So put that all together. <laughs> and, you know, I have a pretty impactful presence in the history of this country, even though I'm only not even 50. So I think it's, you know, it's really, really important. And I'm trying to, you know, I'm going to make mistakes and I'm going to, you know, fuck up and, but it's okay. We need to fuck up to kind of get, get forward. So fail fast, fail fast in our connect, man, you got to get more, get, get with it. <laughs> in many ways. Yes. Um, <laughs> but isn't, isn't that kind of the whole point of uh, what we're doing this year to fuck up? Learn, learn from fucking yes. up big time. Yeah, that's a good outlook. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> I'm just thinking, I was reading about Trump recently and um, somebody somebody was writing about how he got rid of this entire, he wants this one particular agency that deals with the nuclear, deals with some kind of nuclear aspect of our oh, government agency that we've never heard of before, in fact, that they typically have a lag time while they get everybody in place and confirmed. There's usually this overlap. And his staff is saying, as soon as he takes office, you're done. You're gone. It's striking to me how perilously close it appears that we are to something catastrophic happening in the world that has nothing to do with climate change, that has nothing to do with asteroids hitting the planet, that has everything to do with a guy who is orange and is a... a <laughs> Terrible, was it? Le terrible infant? Is that? Yeah, yeah. it's embarrassing. Yeah, and the, it's, and horrible. It is, yeah. it's horrible. Yeah, and this one guy, <laughs> this one guy said, um, somebody said, an intelligence agency, they they put this out. They said off the record that that we're fucked. Essentially, that the only good thing about him blowing up the planet is that we'll only have to suffer one term under Trump. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm like, wow, that's that speaks volumes. <laughs> but hey, we always got architecture. And you know, yes, we can. Yes, we can. Yes, we did. Yes, we can. We'll we'll hold it together. We will. Paul, you want to tell us about what's going to happen in in Architect in 2017? What are the big ideas that you're going to fail at? <laughs> <laughs> nice, good question. nice. <laughs> you know, I've learned from my last two years of uh, predictions about what's what's going to be happening on Archonnect to uh, to know that I'm I'm not giving away any more information again. Okay, but, uh, but right. yeah, no, we're uh, we're going to be seeing. Actually, we just launched something right today that that I I I really like. It's now if you look at news and features, you can see a list of uh, of of other Archonnect articles that are related to yes. the news and features that you're reading, and. As a user of the site, I've already found it to be really, really uh, helpful. But um, I love it. There's also some other cool stuff that we've never really announced. Our job board is now fully mobile friendly, and you can even buy jobs with your fingerprint using Apple Pay, which is pretty what? cool. Ooh. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, we're going to be releasing some new tools for the uh, for the commenting system that some people are really going to hate and some people are really going to love. And I think that um, oh I think that that imbalance of the scales is going to make things much, much more interesting. And we've started recruiting a, a, a moderator army on our connect, which I believe you are both a part of. And we're going to be opening that up to other people that have long histories of commenting in a productive way on our connect to start steering conversations into a better direction. No censorship or anything like that. Just highlighting good stuff, 
uh, not highlighting the bad stuff, making the making the discussion forum and comments more productive and more valuable to people that are actually looking for real information rather than just banter. And uh, yeah, there's going to be a lot of other really exciting things happening in 2017 on our connect, uh, which is actually our 20th year in existence. So, um, <laughs> Whoa. You're kidding me. no, 1997. Oh yeah. my God. Pimpin Architecture yeah. since 1997. Yep. <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm, Really sad that Amelia is not with us anymore, but I am actually really excited about how fired up and excited and at least engaged everyone is, even though we're doing a lot of sighing on the podcast today. Like, oh, I'm exhausted. I, I'm, I'm ex- you know, things are happening. We have to just stay engaged. There's a lot going on. As hard as things are these days, there's a new energy that is that is emerging. My wife yeah. is about to go to uh, D.C. to do the Women's March. Oh, yay! Yeah, Good for her. with a bunch of her friends and my sister from uh, Halifax is going to be flying down to join her in that as well. Awesome. In D.C.? Yeah. Wow. That's fantastic. Yeah, so it's, uh, you know, there's a lot of, there's a lot of good that comes out of the bad. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I think you're going to see a more resonant and uh, population. I think that Obama's speech last night struck a chord with a lot of people, just in terms of activism, if you don't like it. And I think that was kind of a return to his, you know, familiar refrain from when he was elected. You know, it was never really about him. He always said, we are the, we are the change we've been waiting for. And I think that was the one thing that I always regretted is that I didn't work hard enough to, to make that reality come true. And I think that's where a lot of people are going to find that it matters more this time. You know, we thought we could, his sheer power of personality was going to change things. Well, now we have, we know that the antimatter that is Donald Trump is certainly going to have a, a larger impact on the day to day of everyone. Where before you could kind of expect that your expectation was that you can go to work, you can live your day to day, you can live your lives, you can take care of your family, and you can kind of look over at the TV ever so often and kind of, but you were self assured that the people running things at least were thoughtful. They were considerate At least. and they they were trying their hardest. This is the first president that in my lifetime where I actually believe that it is a day-to-day, hand-to-hand <laughs> combat where Brazilian jiu-jitsu is only the first art that you're going to need to deal with this jag-off. And uh, excuse me. Um, but I just want to end on a positive note, Paul. I think the the two things I really, really enjoyed so far, and I'm, I'm still getting through it is the uh, Roto interview. I think it's a quite a thoughtful presentation about faith. It's very interesting. And I think I'm look, I'm really looking forward to uh, Orhan's interview with uh, Carme. So yeah, I, I was there during the uh, Orhan's conversation with Carme and uh, she is, she was just, she blew my mind. She was, she was such an incredible person. I mean, her work is so good. She was great. I mean, I just left with such a, such a great feeling about who she is as a person and an architect. I hope she hasn't disappeared by now because us women architects are just fading away. <laughs> well, she's, she's in Spain. <laughs> no, I have not read that article either, but she, she is an amazing powerhouse, I know. And everyone I know who has any kind of personal interaction with her has loved her. So yeah, I'm really looking forward to reading that article too. All right. Well, thanks, guys. I think that's it for this week's show. Uh, Thanks to everybody out there listening to us. Let us know what you think. What do you want to hear more of in 2017? The boss is away now, that being Amelia. (laughs) So we can do whatever the fuck we want. So yeah, let us know. We've got some ideas that we're going to start introducing in the, into the podcast. We want to keep it fun and we want to, we want to keep giving people what they like to listen to. So let us know what that is. You can uh, reach us on Twitter or by email, connectedarchnect.com. 
And uh, and as always, rate us on on iTunes if you can. Talk to everybody next week.